Well, thank you, team, and uh, good evening, everybody. Um, let me lead us in a prayer as we seek to unpack that story. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, writes this. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we might take to heart that uh, encouragement um, from your apostle for us to pay attention to your word. May we be instructed, motivated, empowered, and filled again by the Holy Spirit who inspired that word. And may Jesus be glorified in that word too. Amen. It is the 12th of October, sorry, it was the 12th of October, 539 BC. I don't remember it myself, but um, I'm not sure that King Belshazzar knew it was 539 BC, but it was uh, the 12th of October that this happened. And uh, Belshazzar uh, decided to hold a great banquet Uh, This was probably an annual banquet held in honor of the Babylonian gods. He had his own favorite gods. And uh, knowing that the Babylonian kingdom was under some threat, uh, Belshazzar gathered into the city of Babylon the various uh, icons and images of all his various uh, gods uh, for safekeeping and so that he could give praise and worship and honor to his gods for this banquet that was held in their honor. And so he gathered around him all his yes men and yes women and uh, they had a jolly good time. Even though his uh, uh, kingdom, uh, his city was... uh, Uh, under threat from the Persian army, he would have felt safe and secure. He had his gods on his side, and he was about to um, flatter and praise his gods. And he had his city as well, um, surrounded by thick and tall walls, Uh, he wouldn't really care who was camped outside those walls. Uh, It was a very difficult job to lay siege to a city protected like that. Uh, All he needed to do is to go to the top of the walls and throw things down on their heads, and they would um, not last very long. Moreover, the city of Babylon was um, provisioned with years and years' supply of food, and as for water, it had the great river Euphrates running right through it. So an endless supply of fresh water. Belshazzar then, even though his kingdom was under some threat, would have felt that his, uh, that his city was uh, impregnable and that he himself as king was in 
vulnerable. And yet, that very night, come on, you can do it. Belshazzar died. He was slain. The, Persian, uh, the Persians did make their way into uh, the great city of Babylon. How? Well, I told you that the great river Euphrates ran all the way through the city. They diverted the flow of the river and they walked in on dry, ground, uh, on, on dry land. And probably because Belshazzar was such an unpopular ruler, there were probably insiders also or inside Babylon who would have aided and abetted the Persian armies. In fact, uh, so overnight, uh, the Babylonian empire fell, the Babylonian king, Belshazzar, was slain, and the empire, the new empire was the Persian empire, and the new emperor was a man who turned out to be much more popular, even with the Babylonians, Cyrus the Persian. And it was Cyrus who... Uh, uh, who gave the edict that all of those Israelites who were exiled in Babylon and had been so for the last 70 years could return to Jerusalem. They could go home. Now, if the story I've just told you sounds vaguely familiar, <laughs> that's because it is the same story as our team just read to you, except everything I've just told you is told by secular historians. Those two guys in particular, uh, Herodotus on the left and Xenophon on the right, two Greek historians. They told the story just as I've just related it to you. And uh, I hope you can see that the two stories, the one told by the Greek historians and the one we've had read from the Bible, are the same story, just with different details either included or left out. And in fact, the story, uh, as told both in scripture and in secular history, is also confirmed in various ways by archaeological evidence uh, because there's much archaeological evidence of ancient Babylon um, uh, that has been uncovered. And indeed, archaeological... That's getting harder and harder to say that word. I'll say it no more. They ha uh, believe they have discovered the very room in which that banquet took place. A vast room with a throne in it and so on. And would you know, some of the walls, one or two of the walls covered in blue with blue tiles, and one or two of the other walls merely covered in plaster. Now, why am I saying all of that, these two stories? Firstly, because I want you to know that the story recorded in the Bible in Daniel chapter 5 is not legend and myth and fairy tale. It's happened in history. As I say, the uh, uh, Greek historians have themselves recorded. Um, but there's another important reason why I want you to be aware of the two stories, uh, because there is a difference. So we have that story told by uh, the um, uh, secular historians, we have this, the story told by Daniel. 
first of all, then, the story as told by Daniel is not legend and, uh, and, and myth. It is historical, uh, a historical story and historical account. But the second thing is there are differences between the, story, between the two stories. And the main difference is this, that in the story as told in Daniel chapter 5, God, God, the sovereign God, God, the most high God, is front and center stage. The story is told and can only be understood from a divine perspective. The secular historians will say what emperors and what armies and what cities were involved. The biblical account says what God was up to. So that then is the difference between the two, the secular and the biblical tellings of the story, in essence. So then, if Daniel is presenting the story to us with God as the prime mover, God as the prime actor, what is Daniel uh, chapter 5 telling us about this God, the one true and living God? Three things. Firstly, we learn in this chapter, and I hope you have it open in front of you. Can I just uh, invite you to make sure you have a Bible open at Daniel chapter 5 and um, page 889? And you can check for yourself to see if these things are so. But the first thing that we read read about in this chapter is about God's things. Verses 1 to 4. What things? Well, have a look with me. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine at this banquet that he held, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that he and everybody else might drink from them. And then you see in verse 4, as they drank from these holy things, these holy goblets, they praised, they toasted the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's what Belshazzar is doing with God's things. Something that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had never dared do. It was Nebuchadnezzar had taken them from the temple in Jerusalem, but wouldn't ever have dared to use them in this way. Think what what Belshazzar is saying to himself, to those around him, and to his gods. He's saying, my gods are more powerful than that god. This is what I think of the god of, uh, of the Israelites, the god of the temple in Jerusalem. I can drink wine out of that and toast my own gods. Because you see, to to treat God's things shamefully is to treat God shamefully. In my family, I had uh, an aunt, uh, my my father's uh, sister, who married... And together they had a little boy. The little boy grew up to be a teenager. And 
the husband, the boy's father, sadly died. My aunt remarried, and her new husband hated, despised his stepson. And one day, when his stepson was a a, a teenager, the stepson came home to find all his things, his clothes, his wardrobe, his toys, the things he played with and everything, had been thrown out of the house into the garden. So do you you see that very sadly and very angrily that stepfather was saying two things. I don't want your things and I don't want you. (laughs) To treat a person's things so shamefully is to treat the person shamefully. And that really is what Belshazzar is doing, not only to God's things, but to God himself, showing utter contempt. The second thing we read about God in this chapter concerns God's word. We know the story, don't we, of the writing on the wall. A human hand appears, and then this writing appears on the wall. And for some strange reason, this, um, uh, I don't know how drunk Belshazzar was, but I don't, and I don't know what the record is for sobering up, but goodness me, <laughs> um, he shook uh, in his shoes. There was just something about that writing and how it appeared on the plaster of the wall that shook him to the core and alarmed him. And I can just hear him now shouting, shouting quiet, to, this, to, to his thousand people in his party, saying, Quiet, what's that on the wall? And they're all puzzled as to what these words on the wall mean. So he drags in his, uh, his magicians. <laughs> I mean, we might expect them to fail. They fail every time they appear in Daniel, don't they? But he still gives them another chance, and they fail again. They can't interpret the writing. Step forward the queen mum... Well, she's called the Queen in, 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 in Daniel. Working out, I think she's probably the, the Queen, the queen Mum. She remembers back over 20 years to, um, to the time when Daniel had a role and a status in the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. So she says, the Queen Mother says to Belshazzar, why not try Daniel to interpret the writing excuse me, on the wall? So Daniel is brought in, and uh, he says, yes, I can do that for you. But first, Daniel says, you're going to have to have a little history lesson, Belshazzar. Let me remind you about your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. If you were here last Sunday evening, um, we had the reading from Daniel chapter 4 and so on, and uh, poor old Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to the role of of an animal, behaving like an animal, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. So Daniel rehearses that part of the story. And he says to Belshazzar, but you have not humbled yourself 
like your predecessor Nebuchadnezzar did. Though you knew all this. Is that not a damning phrase? You knew this. You knew what the one true and living God is like. You knew what he can do. Yet you ignored it. And you turned to your silly, stupid, lifeless idols. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Therefore, God sent the hand that wrote the writing. And now I'm ready to tell you what it means, says Daniel. It's in Aramaic, so it's going from right to left. Mini, mini, tekel, peres. And Daniel explains what that means. You have been numbered. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. Not good enough. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. I know we can do it really. And so we come on thirdly to this third part of God. God's things, God's word, and God's sentence um, is executed that very night. Did you notice those words at the end of the chapter? That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. It seems to me to be a story about tyranny. The word tyranny would normally be defined as an abuse of power. But the Bible tells us that all power is God-given. So therefore the biblical definition of tyranny is it's an abuse of God-given power. And I want us to come immediately right up to date and say, well... If Belshazzar is dead, and he died very quickly, is the spirit of Belshazzar abusing the God-given power that that God has given him? Is the spirit of Belshazzar still around today? I want to suggest that it is. As I say, that that, that somebody has power, refuses to ascribe it to God, the source of all power, and so therefore abuses it in some way. I think a a quick survey of some recent newspaper headlines will indicate that the spirit of Belshazzar, the spirit of tyranny, the abuse of God-given power, is actually very prevalent in our world today. After all, nearly a quarter of the world's population are living under a dictatorship, or some other kind of authoritarian regime. So that's global tyranny. I 
wish this would. There is the tyranny of corruption, widespread corruption in many lands today. There is corporate tyranny, often in the world of commerce. There is religious persecution, including the persecution of many Christians worldwide. There is slavery, and in the news there's been quite a lot about the prevalence of slavery in this country. There is the tyranny of celebrity culture, where those who are skilled in one area, namely for making us laugh, are also deemed to be skilled in making pronouncements about things of which they have no knowledge. There is the tyranny of the exclusion of God from public discourse, the public square. Famous saying, we don't do God. There's tyranny within our education system. This is harder and harder, even in a Christian school, for Christian teaching to be delivered. Nine out of ten Christians in this country feel somewhat tyrannized in terms of marginalization of their faith. And there is religious tyranny too, because with, it, with religious, uh, uh, there is religious power, and uh, that story is unpacked in terms of an abuse of power of a minister over young children. There is that odd story too, where even though that decision was reversed after a short time, and rightly so, uh, there's the attempt to exclude Christian students from a freshers fair in, in Oxford is that the tyranny of a secular society. And then there is self-tyranny, the tyranny of the self, where I shake my fist at the God I say I don't believe in and say, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Is that not self-tyranny and abuse of the power that God has given me over my own life? What is God's verdict on this, on tyranny then and now? That God opposes the proud. He opposed, as he opposed Belshazzar, but gives grace to the humble as he gave grace to Nebuchadnezzar. And can I ask you to note, I've now moved from the Old Testament to the New, from the scriptures before Christ to the scriptures after Christ. And again, it's the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who declares God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So just as God dealt with the tyranny of Belshazzar, so God has promised in his word to deal with all 
present-day tyranny too. God has promised to put all wrongs to right. He will judge the world with justice. And curiously enough, right at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 18, the whole of ungodly civilization, the whole of ungodly society, is given the name of Babylon. Babylon is a theme running through scripture from Genesis, out of Babel, Babylon, right through to Revelation, as a symbol, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a figure of, of human society without God. And the promise at the end of scripture is that Babylon the Great will fall. All tyrannies will fall. God will put all wrongs to right. And in their place, put in, 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 in place his new earth, heaven and a new earth. The home, as scripture elsewhere calls it, the home of righteousness, where God dwells with human beings forever. Now the question is, God once dealt overnight with Belshazzar, why are we still waiting for all this to happen? For God to put all wrongs to right? Why are God's saints, God's people, crying out, as they do there, how long, O Lord, holy and true, how long must we wait? Now, do you feel something of the pain of a suffering creation? Do you feel something of the pain of an aching humanity? Do you feel something of the pain of a suffering church? Our brothers and sisters in Christ, suffering. Do you feel something of the pain? And so therefore, do you cry out sometimes in your heart, why so long, Lord? We, we know and believe you can put all things right. Why not now? It's a very real question. The fact that God doesn't put everything right perfectly now is a source of ridicule to the outside world. Your God is powerless after all. And a source of anxiety to ourselves. But there is a reason why God only deals occasionally as he dealt with Belshazzar that very night. There is a reason why God keeps us waiting. And the reason is this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, the promise to create a new heaven and a new earth and to put all wrongs to right, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's the reason God hasn't put all wrongs to right yet. That's the reason we still live in this higgledy-piggledy, top-topsy-turvy, wonderfully beautiful, mixed-up world that we do. Because God is being patient. Yes, God can do it, and yes, God will do it, but not just yet. And so what about in the meantime? Jesus has power. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. 
your saviour and mine does not lack power. But for the moment, the Lord Jesus does not judge the world. He has come to save it. And so on the back of that declaration of all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says to you and to me, go. Go in my name. Go in my power. Go with my authority. Speak to those around you who are perhaps suffering from that self-tyranny of which we spoke. But also speak if you can, influence if you can, certainly pray for those bigger tyrants of the world. That they might be Nebuchadnezzars and be humbled and not Belshazzars and refuse to be humbled. There's a children's song that says, He, God, has the whole world in his hand. It is perfectly true. Friends, have you humbled yourself? And have I humbled myself before God? Because that's the way into knowledge of God. That's the way into forgiveness and salvation. The way to be lifted up in and with God. Or are you still shaking your fist at him saying, I want to do my thing and do things my way? And are you willing to believe that God has power and will exercise that power to change the hearts even of a Nebuchadnezzar, even of a tyrant, even of a dictator in this world, even our own politicians in this country? He can do it. And let us, on the one hand, pray for the return of Christ and for all wrongs to be right, and work while it's still day for God's kingdom and God's gospel to be uh, widely embraced near and far. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that yours is the kingdom. Father God, we believe that yours is the glory. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are the power of God in this world and in our lives. Now, exercise your power, we pray, not for judgment and condemnation they will come, but for deliverance, for for forgiveness, for transformation, and for newness of life, beginning with us, then moving out from us into all with whom we come into contact and all for whom we pray. Amen.